everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. I would like to talk with you a little bit about the Trinity. I've been doing a little bit of uh, reading and rereading in preparation partly for the forthcoming uh, course in theology and Bible that some of the young people at All Saints are going to be taking part in in the coming weeks and months. I've been looking a little bit at John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion and also at another great little book by Michael Reeves, which you might want to take a look at. It's called The Good God. Great little book. But it's just reminded me again what a wonderful subject this is to think about. It's not really thinking about a subject, is it? It's about it's thinking about our God, thinking about what the living God, Father, Son and Spirit is actually like. And it, it warmed my heart and I wanted to share just a few thoughts with you because maybe in God's goodness it may warm yours as well. One of the things that happens when we start to think about the Trinity is that we realise it's quite complicated. And part of this complexity arises because we already know too much or we think we know too much about what God is like. Let me explain what I mean. We have in the Western world a set of preconceptions about God which form part of our mental and conceptual furniture. They're part of the philosophical background through which we do a lot of our thinking and they these ideas can clutter up our thinking about God without us even realising it. So if I say God in the public square, so to speak, people will tend to imagine a particular kind of being who is probably somewhat distant, far off, uh, powerful and mighty, though perhaps inscrutable, uh, and but above all, a singular being, a being who is one. We have in the West the idea of one God as part of our mental furniture. And the problem is, if we start from there, if we start with that, so to speak, street level idea of this almighty, powerful monad, and then we try and think about God as Trinity, what we're effectively trying to do is to start with something that's basically wrong at the outset and then stuff the trinity into it you start with this one and then you've got these three father son and spirit and you end up with what feels like a tremendously difficult theological math problem and you can't really figure out how the three go into the one or how you get the one into the three and so on and so forth it's a little bit like if you imagine trying to talk to somebody about an airplane who'd only ever seen bicycles if the only kind of wheeled transport he could imagine was a bicycle, and then you try to explain that there's a certain kind of wheeled transport which doesn't use its wheels most of the time, and it has these big long things poking out from both sides, and it can carry 400 or 500 people, and then the kinds of questions that the bicycle guy would come up with would all be framed from within the world that he knows. He only knows about bicycles, so he'd want to say, no, it would never work. Where would the pedals go? And what about the handlebars? Does everyone have their own set and they go in multiple different directions? It wouldn't work. It's impossible. And I think sometimes that's what happens with us when we get puzzled about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's because we've started with the theologi theological equivalent of uh, a bicycle and we're trying to work out how we'd ever stuff an airplane into an idea like that. 
So where should we start then? If we want to start thinking about God as triune, Father, Son and Spirit, where should we begin? And of course the answer is obvious, isn't it? In one sense it's obvious we begin with scripture. Well that goes without saying. But more fundamentally even than that, at the conceptual level, where do we begin thinking about God? How is it that God has revealed himself to us? Put it like that. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? I could make it even more obvious, couldn't I? By saying, in whom has God revealed himself to us? God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, God's son, the son of God. And if you start by thinking about what it means to say that Jesus is the son of God or God the son, perhaps more accurately, suddenly it's possible to make more progress in thinking about God as Trinity. Think about it like this. If we say Jesus is the son of God, well, for there to be a son, there must necessarily be a father. The idea of sonship entails the idea of fatherhood. If this Jesus is the son, then somewhere or other there must be a father. And of course, we know that in biblical terms, we might say, like father, like son. Jesus himself talks in this kind of way, especially in John's gospel. And so he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, because there's a kind of family likeness between the father and the son. So immediately then, if you start with Jesus, the son, as the revelation of God, you can't end up with the idea of God as a kind of inscrutable, distant monad. A singular being with no relational texture within him. You have to end up instead with the idea of a relational God. One, yes, God is one, as scripture says, but he is one within whom relational texture, father and son, also exists. Think of how also Jesus uh, discloses himself right at the beginning of John's gospel, where we read that the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of Christ, of course. Well, again, thinking of Jesus as the word of God helps us to see God as triune. Wherever you have a word, you must have somebody speaking the words. Just think of my words now. I'm the speaker and the words are coming forth from my mouth. So if you say, well, I hear words on this morning's devotion, then what you know for a fact is that there's somebody speaking the words. And more than that, this is where it's possible to introduce the spirit in this way of thinking. As I speak, I'm the speaker, the words are carried forth from my mouth by my breath. As I breathe the words out, the words that the speaker speaks are carried on the breath. And you know this very well, I'm sure, that the Hebrew and Greek words for breath, uh, ruach and pneuma, are also the Hebrew and Greek words for spirit. The spirit of God is the breath of God. And so son necessarily means a father with whom he is related and to whom he is similar or, in fact, identical in essence, if you wanted to use some of the technical terms. The idea of word necessarily invokes or involves the idea of a speaker 
and the breath on which the word is carried. And the words that are spoken are the words that the speaker speaks and the words that the breath carries. There's a kind of identity there as well. This is tremendously illuminating because it gets us away immediately from the idea of beginning with an abstract idea of God and trying to stuff the Trinity into it. Instead, what we discover is as we contemplate Christ, we come face to face with a God who is in himself relational. A God who within the one God contains the capacity and the actuality of relational life between the Father and the Son. Where you have, so to speak, uh, different, we might say, persons, to use the technical term, but all sharing the same essence, sharing the same being of God. Just like a speaker and his words and his breath all carry forth in the end the same message, albeit that they do it in different ways. So that is at least a way to begin thinking about the triune God. Maybe we'll have a little more on this in the next few days, but for now... The Lord bless you, and I hope to see you soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. So let's carry on thinking a little bit about the Trinity and see if we can build on where we ended up last time. You remember that I suggested it's very important that we start with Jesus when we're thinking about God. If we start with contemporary ideas of God, we'll be stuck with a, a monolithic, almighty being and we'll then be trying to think, how do we stick the ideas of Father, Son and Spirit into this one God? And we'll end up with a very complicated theological math problem. One God over here, three persons over here, and ne'er the twain shall meet. We can't work it out. Whereas if we start with Jesus, things start to make more sense. We start with Jesus as the Son, and the revelation of God as Son necessarily entails God as Father. If there's a Son... There must be a father, otherwise the son wouldn't be the son, and vice versa. Similarly, if we start with the idea of God, the son, as the word of God. Well, if you have words, then somebody's speaking the word. You have a speaker, and there must be breath or spirit upon which the words are carried. So you start with the word, you get the speaker and the breath, so to speak, thrown in free. You begin with Jesus, and you're led to the triune God. It's one of the most remarkable features of the Christian revelation of God in Scripture. You get the, the doctrine of the Trinity, so to speak, or just the, the, the being of God as Trinity. It just leaps off the page in that unexpected but wonderful way. Now, this helps tremendously when we start trying to think about the characteristics of God, so the so-called attributes of God. You might be familiar with the term. An attribute of God is just a, uh, a property or characteristic that he has. Uh, things like God is the creator, or God is the, the almighty sovereign, or God is just and righteous or holy and pure. These are characteristics of God. They're what he's like, and sometimes theologians call them attributes of God. Now, why is it so important to start with the Trinity when we're thinking about these attributes of God? Well, let me show you. If you don't start with the Trinity, then what you end up with is a distorted picture of all these attributes. Don't start with the Trinity and you think of God as creator. Inevitably, you're going to start thinking of this distant and transcendent and other being who, because he's the creator and we're the creation, he's cut off from us. It's like the God of Islam doesn't interact with the world in that meaningful sense in which the living God does. Or if you think of God as the mighty sovereign and you're thinking of him as this monad, 
this distant one thing, then for him to be powerful, mighty, sovereign, means that he is the almighty chess player and we are the chess pieces. Or we are like, and you might think of us as like the, the Lego men who occasionally appear on the shelf behind me. Uh, and we don't have any particular connection with him, relationship with him. He's just a long way far off and controlling us. Likewise, if you start with the idea of that one distant God and think about divine justice, the only thing you can think about is a judge and our condemnation before him. Because after all, what would a divine judge do other than condemn the guilty? And we know we're all guilty. But what happens if you start with the idea of the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, and now try and think about those attributes of God? Let's try it, see what happens. So God is Father, Son and Spirit, and he is Creator. Well, what does the triune nature of God have to say about God being the creator. Well, creation is a way in which God gives of himself to create the world. The world and all that is in it pours forth from God as a reflection of his being. And because God is triune, that act of creation itself is a reflection of what is so to speak, going on within the Godhead in eternity. God the Father, for example, is eternally giving himself to the Son to bring the Son's being into being eternally. The Creed says he's, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. God from God. So eternally and forever, for as long as there has been a Father, there has been a Father bringing the Son into being and causing the Son to exist as Son. And that relationship overflows in time and space in a kind of created echo of the eternal divine giving that overflows in creation so that what's happening in creation is that God is revealing something about what he is like in eternity so God is not some distant unconcerned creator rather no he's looking at the creation and seeing within the creation in all its beauty and its textured relationships little echoes of the relationships that exist within him in eternity or think of god as the mighty powerful sovereign and the triune mighty powerful sovereign well within a relational god a father, son, spirit God is an eternal whirlwind of love and mutual concern and mutual giving and receiving. And that's what overflows into creation. And that's what lies behind God's sovereign upholding of creation. It subtly changes how we think of God's sovereignty. God is no longer moving chess pieces about on the board as though he's not concerned for them. Rather, in some wonderful and mysterious way, he's relating to us, even as he moves us. All of our actions are simultaneously actions which are brought about by the mighty, powerful will of God. And at the same time, they're actions that we ourselves do before his face and in relationship with him. Think of God's justice from the point of view of what it means for God to be triune. God's justice 
is the justice of a God in whom there is a father who loves the son. And so it is not a justice which will simply see evil and condemn. The triune God will see justice from the perspective, sorry, the triune God will see uh, evil from the perspective of being the triune God in whom is this whirlwind of love and mutual self-giving, Father, Son and Spirit. And as God sees the injustice and evil in the world, it is no surprise to us that he is not simply the one who condemns that evil. He is in also the the just one and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. What God would like to do for the world is to bring people into relationship with himself, the Son, with whom the Father is always and eternally perfectly reconciled. If he can find a way of dealing with the wickedness of the world without condemning sinners like you and me, then he will. And of course he has. It's impossible to imagine an eternal, distant monad laying down his life for the sins of the world. But once you realise that God is triune, Father, Son and Spirit, it's almost, you might say, the most natural thing to expect him to do, if that's not an irreverent way of putting it. It's no surprise. Maybe this is the best way of putting it. It's no surprise to discover that a God who is eternally loving Father, Son and Spirit should give himself in the person of the Son to find a way not to condemn, but to save those who are united with that incarnate son. And so you see that the Trinity, the triune Father, Son and Spirit character of God reshapes all of the different ways in which we think about God. Maybe we'll think a little bit more about some of those things in the coming days. But for now, the Lord bless you and I hope to see you soon. Bye now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Let's think a little bit more about the Trinity. We saw a couple of devotions ago how important it is to start with Jesus. We don't start with some abstract picture of God as this one divine being, but we start with Jesus, the Son, and the thought of the Son leads us gradually and intuitively and naturally to the thought of, well, there must be a Father. Similarly, you begin with the Word, as in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and the, the idea of a Word necessarily invokes the idea of a speaker and the breath or spirit upon which the word is carried. So if you begin with Jesus, you get the Trinity thrown in. And of course, that understanding of the triune God then reshapes our picture of what we might call the classical attributes of God, justice, righteousness, holiness, God being creator and so on. We don't want abstract pictures of those attributes. We want Trinitarian pictures of those attributes. And that's what we talked about in the previous video. But at this point, an objection might arise and it would go something like this. OK, so we know that there's a son. Yes. And we actually know the son. We've encountered the son because the son is the one in whom God has revealed himself. Right. And we know the Spirit because the Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Right, good. But what about the Father? Do we know the Father? We know that he is there because there's a son. There must be a father somewhere. But where is he? And we can't see him. In other words, 
doesn't this picture of the Trinity that we've been developing actually imply that the Father is hidden from us, cut off from us? We can't know the Father as Father. We know the Son, we know the Spirit, we know that there is the Father, but we can't ever know him and encounter him personally. What do we say in response to this? Well, the first thing to say is that we're not the first people to ask this question. In fact, this is an issue which Jesus encountered in conversation with his disciples. If you turn to John's Gospel, and turning to John's Gospel is a tremendously good idea if you're trying to reflect on the Trinity. Uh, but turn in particular to John 14, uh, and you'll see that this conversation arises between Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus remarks, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he continues, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Interesting. You'd not just known about my father. You'd not just, you'd have known that I've got a father. But know me, you know the father. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Remarkable. You've seen the father. How's that? And that seems to be exactly the thought in Philip's mind when he continues in verse 8. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You see, Philip's uh, request reflects his instinctive reaction that, well, I, I don't think I've seen the Father. I've seen you, Jesus. Show us the Father. That's all we're asking. If we could see the Father, then, so to speak, our picture of God would be complete and Jesus response is wonderful verse 9 Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you don't know me show us the father don't you know me he continues making explicit what we're now thinking anyone who has seen me has seen the father in other words somehow somehow it is the case that the Father is not hidden. It's not just that we know about him, not just that we know that he is there. It's rather that if we have encountered Jesus Christ, then we have actually encountered God the Father as well. That's clear what Jesus is saying. The question is, of course, well, how on earth is that possible? Isn't it the case that the Father is invisible to us? How have we encountered the Father by encountering the Son? Let me give you a couple of thoughts here. The first traces its explicit articulation back at least as far as Augustine, and obviously before that to the Apostle Paul and to Jesus as well in various forms. And it highlights this insight, that when we see a particular attribute of God the Son. We're not just seeing something about the Son. When we see, for example, the almighty power of the Son in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, that almighty power is an attribute of God. And it's not an attribute which only the Son has. It's an attribute which the Father, Son and Spirit share. There is, in technical terms, one divine essence. There's one thing that God is, that is the triune God, but there's one of it, which means that all these attributes of God are shared by and participated in equally and fully by Father, Son and Spirit. The way Augustine put it, if I remember rightly, was there are not three almighties. There's one almighty. 
and he said the same thing about a number of different attributes of God, we might say there's not three almighty powers, there's one almighty power. There are not three mercies or three wisdoms, a father wisdom and a spirit wisdom and a son wisdom. There's one wisdom. So when you see a particular attribute of the son made manifest in the incarnate son, you're seeing that attribute of the father. When you see the power of Jesus in calming the storm or the kindness of Jesus in ministering to the weak or the furious rage of Jesus at those uh, religious critics who um, uh, put burdens on people's backs that were so heavy they couldn't lift them and didn't lift the finger to help them. You're seeing those attributes as the father possesses them as well. We're coming to know the father just as we're coming to know Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. But we can go even further than this. What we've just said is that the attributes of God, almightiness, kindness, power, wisdom, justice, and so on, are the attributes of all three persons of the Trinity. They all belong to the single divine essence which all three persons share. But what about fatherhood specifically? See, fatherhood technically, if you want some technical terminology, is not an attribute of God. Neither is sonship, neither is spirithood, or spiritedness, we might say. Because they are not characteristics of God that are properties of the whole divine essence, all three persons sharing them. Only the Father is Father. Only the Son is Son. Only the spirit is spirit. So isn't it still the case, even if we uh, recognise what we've said about God's attributes, isn't it still the case that God's personal characteristics, Father, Son, Spirit, are hidden from us? At least the Father's fatherhood is hidden from us. We see the Son's sonship, we see the Spirit's spiritness, we don't see the Father's fatherhood. How do we see the fatherhood of the Father? How can... The sonship of the Son reveal fatherhood to us. And then you think, hold on a second, maybe that's how. Let me give you an illustration before I show you where we find this kind of thing in Scripture. You know how you can tell sometimes by looking at a son what his dad is like? You see some young men and you just think, yeah, he's a solid guy. He's wise, youngish, but wise. He's got a good sense of humour. You can even tell, you know, he, he looks a certain way. And then you realise that those are characteristics that he's learned from somewhere. And so often, even in human affairs, where this analogy is imperfect, you can infer the character of the father from the character of the son. We actually see it in a negative sense as well. Sometimes you can see the character of a negligent or abusive father from the character of a son. And we've all seen the statistics which show the correlation between um, how sons turn out when their fathers are abusive or negligent or absent. Like father, like son. The fatherhood of a father is reflected in the sonship of a son. And so it is with God the Father. We don't see the fatherhood of God the Father by looking at the Father. We see the fatherhood of God the Father by looking at its 
reflection in the sonship of the Son. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, we find uh, an example of this, and this is something that Calvin reflects on in the chapter in his Institutes on this subject, but 1 chapter 13, where the author writes that he, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And the phrase exact imprint translates a Greek phrase or Greek term which refers in some contexts to the impression made by a seal, like a, a signet ring, when it's pressed into wax. And when you press a, a seal into a soft substance like wax or clay, you, and then you look at the wax or the clay, you don't see the ring, but you learn about the ring by looking at the impression it has made. Well, so it is with God. We don't see the fatherhood of the Father by looking at the Father. We see the fatherhood of the Father by its reflection in the Son. So let me give you some examples of this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we look at the son and we see how his sufferings led him into new manifestations of obedience. He didn't learn obedience, obviously, by starting out disobedient. He learned obedience by starting out young and growing towards greater maturity in his obedience. But as we see his life, the sufferings that he endured and the obedience that resulted, we see reflected in that life how the father deals with a son whom he loves. Oh, the father is the kind of father who would raise a son like that. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What does that tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us about Jesus that he was humbled himself and that he was then exalted. But what does that tell us about God the Father? Ah, it tells us that God the Father is the kind of God who sees humility and exalts it. He's that kind of father. We see that by observing the Son. Or think of Jesus' baptism, one of the most popular texts for the early church fathers when they were reflecting on the Trinity. Think in Mark chapter 1. Jesus came from Nazareth and he was baptised in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Son, Spirit, voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here what we're observing is how the Son experiences the love of his father in this spirit anointing and baptism and naming and claiming as my son. God the father is the kind of father who does this to his children. So you see in the experiences and life of the son we see the fatherhood of the father also manifested. That's gone on for rather longer than I'd intended. Well done if you made it to the end of this one. And I think that'll probably do us for today. For now, the Lord bless you, and I hope to see you very soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Okay, so today what we're going to do is first keep it shorter than yesterday. My apologies for that, that was too long. Today we're going to try and keep it down. Second, we're going to tackle two technical terms which are sometimes used in connection with discussions of the doctrine of the trinity and then third i'm going to give you one illustration which i think helps us to understand these technical terms or rather what they actually mean what they're getting at the two technical terms i have in mind are perichoresis 
and circumcession or circumincession. They both mean roughly the same thing. One is from a Greek background, the other from a Latin background. And they refer to what sometimes in English, helpful place to start, in English we call the mutual indwelling of the members of the Trinity. Mutual indwelling is quite a difficult thing for us to get our heads round. What it refers to is the fact that, as we observed a couple of times um, previously, the Father and the Son and the Spirit all fully possess everything that it is to be God. It's not that there's a God here and there's a Father bit and a Spirit bit and a Son bit and they've all got a third of God. Rather, there's one God and the whole of what it is to be God, the whole divine nature, is entirely possessed and exhibited and enjoyed by Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Which must mean that they, so to speak, occupy the same space. They, they don't sit next to each other. They are in one another. They mutually indwell one another. And Jesus indeed says exactly this. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So, how do we understand mutual indwelling? How do we understand perichoresis or circumincession, circumcession? And part of the problem here is if we try to think about two things occupying the same space, we either end up saying, well, it's not possible because you've got this and this and they, they bump into each other. They can't occupy the same space. Or we end up thinking, well, they do occupy the same space and they kind of blend together into a sort of mush. It's either like oil and water, which don't mix at all, or it's like um, lemon juice and lime juice, squeeze them both into a jug and you mix them around and you've got another thing which is lemon juice and lime juice. And that's not lemon juice or lime juice, it's a mixture which is different and you don't want to go doing that with God because you don't want to go changing him. So how do we understand mutual indwelling in a way that gets around these problems? Either things bumping into each other or things getting squirged together so they turn into something else. The answer is music. This analogy for the triune character of God has been explored a fair bit in recent years, most notably by a contemporary theologian called Jeremy Begbie. Uh, Peter Lighthart has picked up on some of his insights in a book that he wrote a couple of years ago, Traces of the Trinity. It's there in Jonathan Edwards. There are hints of it in Athanasius and elsewhere. And music, it turns out, is a wonderful analogy for how things can mutually indwell one another without being distorted by one another. Because music is not material. So much of our thought is predicated on concrete ideas physical ideas, material ideas. And so we end up with a, a messed up picture of God because we start off by implicitly imagining there's a kind of material stuff that God is made of and we can't work out how to get three bits into one bit without squirting them together or they exclude each other. But with music, you can do something different. If you're a pianist, this is a particularly uh, easy and intuitive illustration to grasp, but all of us can get some sense of it uh, if you're willing to tolerate my singing. And the way that it would work is you've got to imagine me singing one note like this. La. And then another note like this. La. And then another note like this. La. La, la, la. 
three notes, and then you have to pause the video and go find yourselves two other people to sing two of the other notes, and you sing the first one. So just pause the video now and sing la la la, and if you're in a house where there's more than more than two of you, then you'll be able to do this together. You'll be able to have those three notes going at the same time. Pause the video and try it now. Okay, so you pause the video. What did you notice? Did you notice that those three notes are all discernible? You can hear the la, you can hear the la, you can hear the la. They're distinct and different. And yet, nonetheless, they occupy the same space, don't they? They're, they're filling the, the room in which you're sitting or standing, or they're filling the space in which you are located. Somehow, with music, we can get past this problem of either blurring things together so that they change, or things excluding one another. And that's a wonderful image of the Trinity. Because we want to say that the Father and the Son and the Spirit mutually indwell. They perichoretically inhere in one another. They occupy the same space, not that it is space, but they occupy the same space in the Godhead. And so they share fully in all that it is to be God. And yet at the same time, we don't want to say that it's like lemon juice and lime juice, where you mix them together and you get something altogether different. The Father, the Son and the Spirit retain their integrity as Father, Son and Spirit, even while they indwell one another in this way, like a musical chord does. Da, da, da. And with apologies to my singing, apologies for my singing, I think we will call a halt to this devotion at this point. And I hope that illustration has helped you a little bit to appreciate that aspect of what it is for God to be trying. Look forward very much to seeing you soon, I hope. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back, glad you could tune in again. So let's carry on thinking a little bit about the Trinity and in particular today I want to focus on some ways in which we could get this teaching wrong. How is it that we could misunderstand what it means for our one God to be three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? There are some illustrations doing the rounds. They've been around for many years, many decades and some have been around for a lot longer which purport to clarify our understanding of what it means for our one God to be three persons. But unfortunately, they don't do that. Unlike the illustrations that we've talked about already, they actually distort or create misunderstandings about the triune God. And it's actually kind of helpful for us to know what these misunderstandings are and to see what's wrong with these illustrations because it sharpens and focuses our understanding of the truth of the triune God's life so that we can understand him more fully and clearly. So without further ado, let's pitch in and look at some of these illustrations and try and figure out what's wrong with them. Here's the first one. You've probably heard the triune God compared to ice, water and steam. The way that the illustration is supposed to work is something like this. Ice, water and steam are one thing, just like God is one God. And yet, of course, uh, there are three things there, and especially if they exist at the so-called triple point, the combination of pressure and temperature when all three are in equilibrium, uh, it's possible for them to change into each other without any change in internal energy. And the 
that's supposed to be a little bit like the threeness of God. You've got these three things, ice, water and steam, which are all one thing, all chemically the same. So that's, we're told, a good illustration of what it means for God to be one God. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, the clue... One clue is in the description I just gave you. You probably spotted it already. We don't really want a doctrine of the Trinity in which one of the persons can turn into another one of the persons, like steam can turn into water when it condenses or into ice when it freezes. The Father doesn't turn into the Son. The Spirit doesn't turn into the Father. The persons are relationally distinct and have their own integrity as persons. They don't turn into each other. So that illustration falls apart immediately at that point. But there's another and perhaps more subtle problem with it. Actually, this illustration is a form of modalism. Modalism is an ancient Trinitarian heresy, uh, which uh, expresses the view that God is an undifferentiated single being with no personal distinction within him. The three so-called persons, are in fact simply perspectives on or faces of this one divine being. Those faces might show themselves at different times in history. And so sometimes people express a form of modalism when they talk about a certain era of, era of church history being the age of the father and then a certain era, era being the age of the son and we're now in the age of the spirit. That's heading in the direction of modalism if it's conceived that this one God simply makes himself apparent in these different ways, in these different eras. No, we want a view of God in which the different persons have the capacity to relate to each other. They can, and do, so to speak, coexist and co-relate to each other. They're not different masks that God can put on at different times to reveal just a single divine person. There are other illustrations which have much the same effect. A common one is to say, well, uh, how about me as an illustration of the Trinity? This is going to go wrong already, you can see. Um, I am simultaneously a brother and a husband and a father. There you are, one man, three relationships in which I exist. And of course the problem with that is that I'm not three different relationally integrated persons. I'm one person and to talk of me as a brother and a, a husband and a father is just three different ways of looking at the one me. The more recent three-in-one shampoo, shampoo, conditioner and body wash falls victim to the same problem. This is just one mixture of substances which does three jobs it's not got any kind of relational integrity relational distinction within it so there's a bunch of modalist illustrations which all fall apart in roughly the same way how about another set of illustrations um, you may have heard the triune god compared to an egg uh, it's not in an attempt to be irreverent it's just an attempt to articulate how one thing an egg can be three things as well. It's a shell, uh, it's got the white stuff in it, and then it's got the yolk in it. So the one is also three. The one God is also three persons. Well, this is wrong for a different reason. Uh, in this case, you've got the yolk and the white 
stuff and the shell all existing at the same time and they're distinct from each other, unlike with ice water steam, when you have it flitting between the, the three different things. But here the problem is, how much of the yolk, say, dwells within the white of the egg? How much of the white is in the yolk? How much of the shell is in the yolk? The answer is, of course, none. You could separate them out, and indeed when you're cooking, that's what you do. You crack the egg, get rid of the shell, you've got the shell here, and then you put the egg in uh, like a little egg cup or something, and then you need the white to whip up something else. You can separate these three, three things out. You don't actually have one thing in any meaningful sense at all. You've got three things. And so this actually is a form of tritheism. Three gods-ism. If you say that God is like an egg, really what you're going to have to do at some point is either to admit you've got three distinct and separate things and three gods, or what you're going to end up doing is saying, well, faced with that unnerving prospect, we'll put a star next to one of them, he can be the real God, and then you've got two subordinate gods, and that doesn't give you tritheism, it gives you one God, but it doesn't give you Trinitarian monotheism, because this one God is now just a one thing with no relational distinction in him. So the egg falls apart for that reason. It's either tritheist or it ends up back at non-Trinitarian monotheism. The illustration of the shamrock, that little three-leafed uh, plant, also is the same thing. You've got three leaves and this leaf is just different from this leaf and really has no connection to it. So there's a cluster of illustrations that go wrong for a different reason. One more set for you. You may have heard the triune God compared to the sun. The sun, the big orange star in the sky, sends out both light and heat. So you've got the sun itself, and then you've got light and heat, which are, so to speak, produced by the sun and connected with the sun. And so here you've got the one thing, the bright hot sun, within which description you can distinguish three things. The sun, the brightness of the light, and the heat that it produces. Well, what's wrong with this? This is probably, if it's understood in the way that I think it would be understood, a form of what is known as Arianism. This is another ancient heresy with which the Church Fathers did battle in the first few centuries of the Church. According to Arianism, only the Father is truly and properly God. The Son, and in fact the Spirit, although Arians didn't tend to talk so much about the Spirit, the debate was really about the Father and the Son. The Son is created by God. He's a creature, not one with God, the Creator. This actually is the view of modern Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witness um, theology and Christology is technically Arian theology and Christology. They don't believe in the full divinity of God the Son. The Son is a subordinate being. He comes from God rather like the light and the heat come from the Son in that illustration. You can see why that illustration actually serves as an illustration of Arianism because just to put it simply the heat that we feel from the Son is not the Son itself. Whereas in uh, Christian, Orthodox, 
classical biblical Trinitarian theology, the Son and the Spirit are both fully God and possess everything that it is and means to be God. So there are three little illustrations which show us how, sets of illustrations which show us how we could go wrong. In tomorrow's devotion, I'm actually going to raise one or two more illustrations which go wrong in more subtle ways and which might be harder for us to spot and might even, if we're not careful, be more likely to influence our thinking in unhelpful ways. But I'll save that for tomorrow. For now, the Lord bless you and I hope very much to see you soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. So as promised today, we're going to spend a little bit of time just looking briefly at a couple more illustrations of the Trinity, which if we're not careful, have the potential to mislead us. Uh, we looked yesterday, you remember, at a number of illustrations which are just really, really bad. Uh, the illustrations today are a little different. The first one, um, you can just about make something of it if you're careful. Um, and the second one is not really designed as an illustration of the Trinity at all, as far as I can make out. But we do need to be careful that we don't use it in that way, because then it could mislead us. The first I have in mind is the so-called shield of the Trinity. Take a look at it here on the screen now for a moment. And you may find uh, that you've seen something like this somewhere before. This is the most basic form in which the, uh, the image tends to appear. And what you have is the three corners of this triangular figure, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then God in the middle. And what this shield design appears to be aimed at doing is articulating the fact that the father is not the son and the son is not the spirit and the spirit is not the father but the father is god and the son is god and the spirit is god and you can see so far so good that seems to do the trick quite well the reason this is called the shield of the trinity is uh, in part because in a number of uh, contexts it has been uh, turned into a shield design and in fact one of its earliest appearances back in the 13th century was in the manuscript of a book which uh, and there was an illustration that looked like this it's on your screen now uh, it's all in latin but it says roughly the same thing uh, except here uh, the father is at the top left is uh, the spirit is at the top right and the son is at the bottom and then you've got um, God Deus in the middle. But the point of this illustration is to clarify some true creedal statements. It's true that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And it's true that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are God. But you can see the problem with it, can't you? If you just take a look at the original, uh, more simple and uh, clear illustration, um, the form of this illustration, how many things do you have on this picture? You've actually got four. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and then God stuck in the middle. And you can see, therefore, how this illustration could, if we weren't careful, be misunderstood. If it's just understood as a representation of the statements, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Father is God, and so on, then that's fine. But you can easily see how it could be misunderstood to suggest that the God thing 
sort of lies behind the three persons or separate from the three persons as a fourth thing. There's the Father and the Son and the Spirit and then there's God, so to speak, behind the persons or somewhat distinct and separate from the persons. This misunderstanding is actually what uh, John Calvin was accused of believing by some critics who misunderstood him. We're going to look at this if you're doing the um, Bible and Theology course on John Calvin's Institute. We're going to look at this in uh, a couple of months' time. Actually, I believe that Augustine has been misunderstood by some of his critics in more recent times as having taught something like this as well. We must emphasise, firstly, that that's not either what Augustine or Calvin thought, and neither should we imagine that God is a fourth thing lying behind the persons of the Trinity. No, rather, the thing that God is, is Father, Son and Spirit. Those three persons fully exhibit and possess everything that it is to be God. God is not a fourth separate thing from them. So that's the first illustration. Now here is the second and this might look a little bit familiar to you. This is called a triquetra. It's actually a very, very ancient design. It may well date back at least to, well, it certainly dates back to at least 400 BC. It's possible that it dates back to thousands of years before Christ. It's actually, in mathematical terms, it's the simplest form of a knot that can be formed with a sing single chord. Um, and it's uh, it's called a triquetra in part because it has these sort of three corners to it. And in more recent times, it has been adopted as a kind of Trinitarian symbol. And in some Christian circles, um, it has been uh, accompanied with uh, an additional element, a circle that interweaves within the three corners of the triquetra to form a symbol a little bit like this one. And you know where you've seen something like this before. This is the sort of thing you find on church logos, like our church logo, for example. And so what are we to make of this? Well, the first thing to observe is that um, what you've got here is a, a fascinating example of how Christians have, uh, if you like, appropriated or taken something from unbelieving cultures and found something beautiful and wonderful in it. Uh, this actually became much more popular with the revival of Celtic spirituality in the 19th century. Before that, it wasn't so widely used by Christians, but since then, it's become quite widely used and popularly used among Christians. The, the Christian addition of the circle to this figure uh, was uh, intended in some contexts to represent eternal life. So you've got this figure in the background, the, the three-pointed figure, and the circle representing eternal life. And uh, on the one hand, you want to just say, well, it's it's just like a design. It's just a beautiful thing. It's completely fine. You've probably seen it on jewellery. You've seen it probably in stained glass windows and you can certainly see it on our church logo. But we want to be very careful that we don't misunderstand this to be saying something that it's not intending to say. It's inclusion on our church logo and on any orthodox Christian church logo should not be construed as an attempt to depict God. If you just look at the design, you either have 
the problem that the shield of the Trinity has, in which you've got a fourth thing uh, in the centre, uh, onto which the three persons are added, or you've got three persons which don't fully possess all of each other, for the three points of the triangular design, or you've got some other combination of the two. Either way, whatever you, uh, however you attempted to read this, it's not possible to read it as an actual depiction of the Trinity. This is a perfectly fine thing to retain as a piece of Christian art, but that's what it should be understood to be. But it's interesting, isn't it? If we're not careful, it's very possible for us to allow beautiful things, uh, works of human creativity around us, to shape our understanding of the truth of Scripture in some unhelpful ways. So we should resist that and make sure that our understanding of the living God is formed from Scripture as it ought to be. Well, that's enough on that, I think, for now. In the meantime, the Lord bless you, and I hope very much to see you all very soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. OK, I want to think for a moment today about some practical implications of the doctrine of the Trinity, and particularly some practical implications for our relationships. One of the things that ought to be obvious when we think of the, the living God being triune, Father, Son and Spirit, is that ultimate reality, God is the, the ultimate reality behind and above and before all other reality. Ultimate reality is relational, relationship. And therefore, we might expect the character of the living God as triune to have some significant implications for our relationships. Now, contemporary discussion about the relationship between God's relationships and human relationships has in recent years focused quite heavily on how the Trinity, and particularly the Father and the Son, provide a pattern for the relationship between husbands and wives, and particularly the question of wives submitting to husbands as the son submits to the father. And if you have uh, found yourself stumbling across any of those debates in recent years, uh, you may have noticed that they became quite heated and quite confused extremely quickly. And it's not that I think there's nothing valuable in that way of thinking, that is, father, son, husbands, wives, but I do think there is a more basic and fundamental point, and it's that that I'd like to think about in today's devotion. The basic principle is this. In God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit become who they are by giving and receiving. The Father is only the Father by virtue of the fact that he is bringing into being the Son, by giving himself to bring the Son into being eternally. That does not, of course, mean that uh, the Son is subordinate to the Father in essence. That's Arian doctrine. We thought about that uh, a day or two ago. What it means is that the one God who eternally is unified in one essence is 
the father giving himself to the son or the father begetting the son. You may recognize the, uh, the technical term eternally begotten. The son is eternally begotten of the father, the creeds say, which means that the son is eternally being caused to be the son by the father. But what's striking about this is if the father stopped doing that, and that hypothetical question is a nonsense in a sense, but just imagine it for a second. If the father stopped causing the son to exist, then it wouldn't just be the case that the son would stop existing. It would also be the case that the father would no longer exist either. For the very existence of father necessitates the existence of son. A human father only becomes a father when his child, in this case, comes into being. Similarly, the son receives that being from the father. He can't be who he is except by receiving. And he, in turn, like the father, brings into being the spirit. The spirit proceeds eternally from the father and the son. Again, a basic creedal doctrine. Now, this relationship this pattern of relationships in God has some significant connections with the nature and the pattern of human relationships. And in broad terms, we can say the same thing. People only get to be who they are by giving and receiving. None of us is self-generated. All of us have received our being from others, most obviously from our parents, but also from the many other people who've influenced and shaped us over the years and the decades. And that should prompt in us a sense of great gratitude. We are, there is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Of course, there are people who are more or less motivated and more or less independent, but there's nobody who's entirely independent. All of us derive what we are from other people having given themselves to us, not least when we were very small and very vulnerable, but actually throughout our lives. Children know this. Husbands and wives know this. Anybody who's ever got a friend, and that's all of us, knows this, that we only receive who we are. We only become who we are, sorry, by receiving it from other people. But in addition to that, we actually become who we are by giving to other people. We're not just like the son, you see. We're also like the father. There's a very great tendency in today's self-obsessed world to imagine that in order to preserve my integrity as a human being and give myself, so to speak, space to breathe and space to be who I've got to be, what I need is me time. I remember hearing that phrase for the first time a few years ago uh, from a couple of people who talked about the need to have me time. And both of these people were actually mothers with young children. And they found the experience of being a mum exhausting, like all mums do. Uh, and they talked about how I, I need some me time. Now, of course, there's a sense in which that's true, isn't it? I mean, it, we all need to rest a little bit. Sometimes we need to have a nap in the middle of the day. We need to sleep. We, and it's good to have time alone at various points. But... I was struck by that, and I think there's a mistake there, quite a serious mistake. If we imagine that it's in that me time that we become who we really are, 
That's not true. It's in giving to others, giving of ourselves to others, that we become who we are. Think of somebody at church or somebody in your circle of friends whom you admire. And think about why you admire them. I, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I would venture to put good money on the fact that you admire them precisely because of what they have done for other people. And it's that that's made them who they are. Actually, we all become more of who we are and certainly more of who God wants us to be by giving ourselves to other people. Friends who go out of their way for friends, siblings who go out of their way for their siblings and their parents and parents who go out of their way for their children, bosses and employees who go out of their way to give themselves to their work colleagues or their employees or their employer. And those things aren't, we shouldn't think of them as, oh, that's a drain on my resources. It's not like we are a tank full of stuff and what happens at the beginning of the day or the beginning of the week is that you open the faucet and it all drains out and we lose who we are as we give ourselves away. That's not how human beings work. We become more of who we are by giving ourselves away. We're Trinitarian in that sense. All relationships are Trinitarian because all relationships are created by the triune God and everything is patterned on the character of the living God. And if the living God ultimately behind all things becomes who he is by giving himself away, then we should expect to find the same thing in human relationships as well. You certainly see this in the history of the church, in the early church, in the scriptures and throughout the history of the church. As faithful, godly men and women have grown to be who they are in Christ by giving themselves away to serve one another. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity that lies behind that. If you trust in a triune God, which you do, you can confidently give yourself away to others. Confident that in doing so, you'll become more of the man more of the woman that God has made you to be. May the Lord bless you as you do so. And I hope very much to see you soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Okay, I want to think a little more about another practical implication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this one is perhaps a little less easy to grasp in an abstract sense. And so maybe I can make it more concrete by comparing this implication of Trinitarian theology with the corresponding situation in another religious tradition which lacks Trinitarian theology. I'm thinking of Islam. The practical principle that I have in mind is that both unity and diversity are good things. Whereas in a non-Trinitarian theological picture, we would not expect to find that diversity is a good thing. Only unity, oneness, sameness would be regarded as good. Let's try and think abstractly about that for a moment, and then I'll give you a couple of practical examples of what I have in mind. In Islam, God is one and not three. And God is, in Islamic theology, Allah is, the perfect the transcendent, the great, the holy, the glorious, and so on. But there is in him no distinction at all, no relational 
distinction or diversity at all. And so if you ask yourself from a philosophical standpoint, how many ways are there of being perfect in Islam? Ultimately, you'd have to say one and one only. Contrast that with the Christian picture of God. How many ways are there of being perfect in the Christian faith? Try and ask the question from a philo philosophical standpoint. You notice it becomes a little more complex. In one sense, we want to say there's one way of being perfect. One God exhibits in himself all glory, all perfection, all beauty, all wonder, all splendor. It's found in that one God. There's one way of being perfect. And yet, then you want to say, hold on a second, within that one set of perfections, those perfections are relationally oriented to each other and to the world in three distinct, different ways. The Father is not the Son, and the Son and the Father are not the Spirit. So how many ways are there of being perfect within Christian philosophical theology? Well, one and three. We'd expect to find in Christian thinking the idea that unity and diversity are good things. Whereas, as we said a moment ago, Islamic theology doesn't provide that backdrop. So let me now give you a couple of illustrations of this. If you walk around certain parts of London, which are heavily dominated by Muslim communities, certainly other parts of the UK, places like Bradford, uh, other regions where there are large, strong and quite orthodox uh, Muslim communities. And certainly if you go to somewhere like Saudi Arabia, where the whole country uh, exists within that religious outlook, and you look at how people dress, particularly look at how women, ladies, dress, you notice something very striking. They all dress in the same way. Uh, in fact, in the most uh, extreme orthodox forms of Islam, where women wear the burqa, the full face and head and body covering, it's as though the piety within Islam has developed so as to obscure any differences between one woman, one lady and another. It's as if the practical day-to-day -day life of Islam shouts and screams at us, there is only one way of being beautiful, and it's this way. No diversity, no variation, no difference can be tolerated. Whereas now, of course, if you look at Christian churches, even conservative Christian churches and churches that are very culturally conservative, you do notice a huge amount of diversity if you look at the same kind of characteristics, what men and what women wear. Now, why is that? You can see that Trinitarian theology provides a foundation for both unity, in a sense, conformity to certain standards, and also diversity within that conformity. We'd expect to find in Christian life and Christian piety the recognition both that there are standards, so to speak, within which we ought to exist, because there is one God, 
There is a principle of unity and conformity to that one standard, which is a good thing. But yet within that, we'd expect to find also a vast degree of diversity. There are many, many, many different ways for a Christian woman to be beautiful. As many, in fact, as there are Christian women. Another example, and here it's much easier for me to talk about just the Christian example because I've had very little experience of uh, living in a Muslim community. I only have a few Muslim friends here and I don't remember the last time I spent any time socially with them in their homes. It happened once or twice, but it's been a long time ago. At the church here at Emmanuel, one of the things that we've been blessed with is a fairly substantial cultural diversity. We have had Christians here from, well, at one time, there were 25 different nationalities in the church all at once. And that's quite something for a church of sort of 55, 60 people. I think the total number of nationalities that we've had in the congregation now is probably over 35 different people. And every year uh, since the second year of our existence in 2010, we began in 2009, uh, we have had an Easter feast at which we've asked a different uh, family or person within the church to plan the menu and then other families have contributed cooking various dishes and we've sort of eaten it all together and had a big buffet meal kind of bring and share but it, the menu has been planned by somebody and we realised at an early stage that we had so many different uh, cultures, different ethnic backgrounds within the church that we could probably find a different nationality every year who'd be willing to plan the menu and so we have every single year we've had food from a different part of the world uh, we've had Chinese food, we've had English food, that was the first one we had roast lamb, very traditional English Easter dish, Chinese food, Polish food, we had um, a couple of ladies uh, from uh, sub-Saharan Africa who cooked a whole mishmash of different things from uh, their Ghanaian and uh, Zambian backgrounds. We've had a whole range of different Mediterranean and European and African and Afro-Caribbean backgrounds simply representing the uh, diversity of cultures and ethnic groups within the church here in London. And that's simply because London is a diverse place. It brings together people from lots of different places. But the important principle here is that all those meals were wonderful. It turns out that there's not just one way of eating wonderful food among Christians. And we might even take that for granted, and perhaps we do. All of our cultures in the West are multicultural now to a degree, even cultures which have less diversity than we have here in London. But we shouldn't miss the significance of this. From the perspective of Christian theology, the goodness of this diversity is grounded on the character of God himself, within whom, yes, of course there is unity. There are certain things that it's bad to wear and certain things that it's bad to eat. But within the realm of things that it's good to wear and good to eat, and all the goodness in every other aspect of life, art and architecture and all the other aspects of culture that we are immersed in all the time, there are many, many, many ways of being beautiful, many ways of being good, many ways of being wonderful, many ways of reflecting the glory of the triune God who has made us. So you see, it turns out that the doctrine of the Trinity has some fairly far-reaching practical implications that we might not even realise are there, but which turn out to be extremely significant for shaping our lives together. May the Lord bless you, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. <music>